Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are uh, wrapping up a series that we've been in for a few weeks, going through the uh, kind of the Advent season. We're talking about really the messy path that leads to the Messiah. And we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus and talking about the kind of the way that Jesus came to be, very much the way Matthew started his gospel account, is he literally starts off in the the beginning of his account saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Like, this is how Jesus got here. And he goes through the... Uh, all of the lineage of the family and the names. We've talked about David. We've talked about some of the prophets that, and some of the prophecies that were fulfilled. And today we're going to look at um, a couple of characters and some real uh, specifically that are more of the unexpected characters in the lineage of Jesus. And in the culture of the Bible, it was a, a world that was very much male-dominated, um, and it was a, a world in which women were um, more uh, looked at for their ability to provide heirs, their ability to provide in the home, and somewhat expendable in certain cases, in certain parts of the culture. And so for women to show up at all in the lineage of Jesus, it, for us in the world that we live in today, it just seems normal, like that there would be really remarkable women in your family line. It's like, well, of course, have you met my grandma? Like, she's amazing, right? Like, we all just, it just goes without saying. But in the world of the Bible, it was pretty remarkable that women would show up in the lineage of Jesus. And so we see in uh, Matthew's account, we see names of people like Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba, and then, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to take a little bit deeper dive and look at one of those gals in particular, Tamar. And so we're going to circle back and we're going to talk a little bit about Tamar. The thing that's interesting about Tamar and her story is um, lots, but it's really not a story that gets talked a lot about, particularly from a pulpit, because it's pretty unsavory and it's full of details that are difficult to talk about in mixed company. And we're going to walk through those a little bit. But, but more importantly, like I don't want to talk about it just because it's not a story that often gets talked about. I really want to talk about it because it, it, her story reveals so much to us about who our God is and what our God is like. We learn so much about the miraculous grace of God in spite of the, the mistakes and the messes that we make through Tamar's story. And I think probably even though it's uncomfortable and it's messy and there are some things in it that are hard to talk about, I think if any of us sat down for coffee, we would probably find in our own lives that there are things that are uncomfortable and that are messy and that we would rather not talk about, right? Like, there's, there's a lot to relate to in the messes that we make in our lives over the years. And so we're going to talk about her story this morning. But in order to do that, you have to know who Judah is. And Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, a brother of Joseph. And what's interesting about Tamar's story is it's interconnected to Judah's story. And the way their story shows up on the scene is pretty peculiar because it it shows up in the middle of this great big narrative story of Joseph's life. 
So in the book of Genesis, there are many chapters devoted to Joseph's life. And in, in, like it sort of just sort of takes an interlude in the middle of his story. This story about Judah and Tamar pops up. And it seems a little bit out of context or out of place. And so I, I want to unpack that for a little bit. And in order to know uh, how we get there, you gotta, we got to talk a little bit more about Judah. And so Judah, uh, again, like I said, is one of the sons of Jacob. And so, or, yeah, one of the sons of Jacob. And then Joseph is the youngest brother in this family. And you may be familiar with the fact that Joseph was a favored son. Not just favored, but actually favorite. In fact, it says in the scriptures that his dad literally said, he is my favorite Right? He didn't just hint like some of people you know, do. You know who you are. Um, he didn't just hint. He actually said that Joseph was his favorite. And, and then on top of that, he made him this extravagant coat. I, I was going to wear my Joseph coat this morning, but it had a lot of sequins, and I thought it might hurt your eyes. So I opted off of the Joseph coat. It, it, he, he said he was his favorite, and so it bred a lot of hatred from his brothers and jealousy from his brothers. So here's a little tip that we can take from this right out of the gate. Parenting tip. Um, It is unwise to have a favorite. And we sort of laugh about that, but it's really, really true. Like when you as a parent distinctively say that one of your kids is favored, obviously above the rest, it can do nothing but harm the relationship among your kids. And what parent would ever want any of your kids to ever get to the spot where they had to actually think, I know they like that one better. I wonder if they even like me at all. Like no parent would ever go, I hope my kids one day wonder if I love them. We would never do that. But somehow we can slip into those mistakes. And so that's a, a, a wise lesson we can pull away from this story because that favoritism led to great tragedy in their family. In fact, one time when the boys uh, were off uh, with the sheep in a far off place, grazing the sheep, long ways from home, uh, his dad sent Joseph to go check on him. Joseph goes out a long ways off to this other area to catch up with his brothers and check on the sheep. And they get the, this bright idea while they're there, like, he's a long ways from home. If we were ever going to get rid of this guy, here's our chance. Like, surely this is the spot, right? And so they hatch a plan. The oldest brother, Reuben, has kind of holds it back in his mind that he, he's like, I don't agree with that plan. He's sort of just, we kind of get the window into his thoughts a little bit after the fact. He doesn't agree with the plan, and he has an idea that he would come back and kind of bail his brother out and make sure he gets returned safe to his father. But things kind of go by uh, too fast, and he doesn't get to do that. Judah, one of the brothers, gets this bright idea that, hey, if we're going to go to all the trouble to cover up a murder and deal with the consequences, we might as well make a buck. And he goes, I know of a place, like there's a way where we could actually sell him and at least get paid if we're going to have to go to all this trouble. And so he hatches a plan, they sell Joseph off, and what's interesting is how they handle it next. So they take that fancy coat, they tear it up, they get a goat, they kill the goat, they put blood on the coat to make it look like he'd been attacked by a wild animal. Now here's a little interesting thing where you can see the the guilt and the shame already starting to kind of shape what they do and how they act because they don't go take the coat back to their dad. They have it sent back to the dad And the message that goes with this coat is, look what we found. Isn't this the coat that belongs to your son? 
they don't even have the, the guts, if you will, to say, look what happened to our brother. It's like they want to distance themselves from the behavior and the choices that they've made, right? They don't even want to go see him in person. And so what happens next is the rest of the brothers seem to just kind of work through it, go back to life as usual. But what happens with Judah is really unique. He responds differently than all of the rest of the brothers. He actually goes to a far-off land, leaves his family, leaves his brothers, goes to a far-off land, marries a Canaanite woman. And with this Canaanite woman, he starts a new life. Sort of get the idea that he doesn't want to have to look at his family. He doesn't want to have to look at his brothers. He doesn't want to be reminded of the thing that he had done. Because although it seemed right at the time, it, I think, haunted him a bit by the way he seemed to kind of turn the direction he turned in his life. And so he marries this Canaanite woman, and with her they have three sons. And these are three names that are still highly unpopular in the uh, list of names for your children. We've got firstborn, Ur, not to be confused with Dur. So we got Ur, Onan, you know, he was a barbarian, right? And then the last one, I think maybe they wanted a girl, Shayla. Maybe not the manliest name, right? So Shayla. So we got Ur, Onan, and Shayla. And and when they get to the age where they're ready to be married in the culture, they were uh, arranged marriages. And so this is where we meet Tamar for the very first time. Tamar is uh, arranged to be married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. And you got to understand, like, we just sort of zip through this story and, and we put in our mind's eye things that make sense to our experiences. When we think about somebody being married or arranged to be married, we think of a young woman. What you need to think about to kind of have a more right picture of what Tamar was going through and where she was at in life is probably a sophomore, junior girl in high school. Like, think about a sophomore or junior in high school. Think about where they're at in life, their maturity level, their experience level. That's probably more like the age that she would have been to have been arranged to be married to his oldest son. So that marriage goes off. She's married to Ur. We don't know a lot about that early marriage or what happens, but what we do learn from the text is that Ur was not a good guy. It says in the scriptures that he was so wicked that God struck him dead. No sons, no babies were produced in that marriage. And so uh, Tamar is widowed at this young age after being wed without a choice to a man so wicked, God killed him. Doesn't sound like a great experience. Well, in the culture... And then it later became a practice that was adopted by Jewish law and written into the Torah was this idea that the next son in line would marry the widow. And so the idea behind that was that that next son in line would produce an heir for the older brother who had died. And so Onan, the next guy in line, he goes along with it publicly, but privately he really is not on board with it little passive-aggressive. He says one thing out there, but he does one thing behind the scenes. He says that he'll go along with it. He, he marries Tamar, as Judah had instructed him to. But 
in order for him to go along fully with the plan, he would need to have a son with Tamar, and then that son would actually become the heir of Ur. There's a tongue twister, right? But that would require a lot of sacrifice for Onan because it would be giving up inheritance. It would be giving up a son. And that's not something that Onan was good at, was self-sacrifice or looking or putting the needs of others first. And so what we, uh, we learn a, a tiny bit more about Onan than we did about Ur. And what we do learn about him is unsavory. It is not nice. You might think, okay, well, if he really didn't want to provide an heir for his brother, then maybe he just would ignore her. Well, that would be a little bit kind, and that wasn't something that he was. And so instead, he used her for his pleasure, but he practiced an early form of birth control that would make sure that she would not become pregnant. And he treated her like an item instead of a person or a wife. And what we learn in the scriptures is that God looked down and saw his wickedness and struck him dead. So now you have this young lady twice widowed, twice married to men so wicked that the Lord removed them from the earth. And Judah looks at the situation and looks at his last son and thinks, there's no way I'm letting Shelah within 10 miles of, of Tamar because it must be her. She must be the problem. She must be the one that is causing these things to happen. There must be something going on. So he sends her back to her father's house under the guise of an excuse that his youngest son is too young to be married. He's not ready yet. So, you know, and that, that's sort of his out. And so he sends her back home. And so she goes back to her father's house. But you've got to understand as she goes back to her father's house, she carries with her just immense amounts of shame and embarrassment she's barren twice widowed in the in the culture in the ancient world if good things were happening to you the idea is that god is happy with you you must be pleasing god if bad things are happening to you it's because you must have done something to displease god or make god angry at you and so you've got to imagine her life from people looking at her and observing her life and the circumstances that had happened from the outside, there have to be looking at her going like, what horrible sin must you be hiding? What are you doing? How, how could you be so wrong that God is this angry at you to take two husbands, to have you returned to your father like a defective product? The gossip, the murmurs that would have been going on around her. Remember her age on top of all that. What happens as the story goes on gets even more uncomfortable, but you can sort of start to understand the circumstances. You see, Tamar could have listened to the press about her, right? Listen to the stories. She could have started letting those things soak in. She could have started to actually believe what people were saying about her, that she was broken, that she was wrong, that must have been her fault. There was something not right about her, right? Like she was disposable. She could have come to the spot where she was wondering if it was worth living, but it doesn't seem like that's the kind of person she was. She, she seemed to have this drive for justice, for righteousness, to, to, to want to make things right in her life some way, even if it was the wrong way. So as the story goes on, it's many years later. This young guy, Shayla, is now grown up. 
well into the age that's appropriate for him to be married. And it becomes obvious to Tamar that the dad, Judah, is not going to let her marry him because he's now plenty old enough to be married and he's still making no arrangements. And so she hatches a plan to make sure that she would have an heir, that she would have a son. And she makes a plan that is quite uncomfortable because her plan involves her father-in-law, Judah. She gets word that Judah is on his way to a town uh, away from his area that he lived in to go get his sheep sheared for the season. Uh, This town, coincidentally, is called Timnah. If you remember, we were talking about Samson. That's the same town that Samson went to to find a wife he shouldn't have been looking for. If you ever see Timnah on the map, Take the route around, right? Like, I hope nobody ever names their town Timna. It doesn't seem like a savory, good place to be. So she decides she's going to dress up like a prostitute. She's going to veil her face. She's going to adorn the clothes that are obvious clothes of a prostitute in their culture. She goes to the road that leads to Timna and sits by the road waiting for Judah to come by. Sure enough, he comes by and uh, there's no mistaking it in the scriptures. It simply says that when he saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. Her outfit worked. It was obvious to him what she was. And so he goes up and approaches her and makes a proposition for a deal. And she says, well, what will you pay me in return for this? And he makes up an offer that he would pay her in a form of a young goat from one of his herds after the fact. And, And she wisely asks for some collateral. She's like, I don't know if this is a guy I can trust. I've got a little experience with him. And so she asks for collateral, and the collateral she asks for is significant. She asks for his signet ring, for his cords, and for his staff. This is, uh, this is akin to us in our culture asking somebody for their driver's license, their social security card, and their Costco card, because it's the only other ID in your wallet that's got your picture on it. Right? That's what she was asking for. She's like, collateral that's not just valuable, but is attached to your identity. Well, he strikes up the deal. They do the stuff. And when they're done, she hightails it out of there the minute it's safe to go, gets rid of the prostitute stuff, goes back home. And sure enough, a little while later, Judah does send a person, a servant, to come back to pay her with the young goat. Well, when he gets there, he can't find her anywhere. He's looking all over the place. He can't find her anywhere. And on top of that, he actually starts asking around about this prostitute, and they say, not only have we not heard of her, we actually never have even had a prostitute work that spot. Like, that's not something that's been common. So we don't know what you're talking about. Well, the servant realizes, bummer, my boss got duped. He's been robbed. And so he goes back, breaks the news to Judah. Hey, I hate to tell you this, but uh, she stole your stuff. Now Judah's in a bit of a bind. This is not the sort of thing you want to go out on Facebook. I'm looking for my ring and my staff. I slept with someone I shouldn't have. And if anybody happens to see her, right? Like these, these are uncomfortable details. And so he wants to keep this private and he decides it's just going to be a loss. The things are gone and he carries on with life. Well, a few months go by. She did indeed become pregnant and she begins to show. The word spreads and reaches Judah that his daughter-in-law has become pregnant by means of pretending to be a prostitute or prostituting herself, as the story goes. And he 
is furious. He is so angry with her. Like, it's like all of this boiled up rage against the things that had happened to his sons, the fact that she couldn't provide, the embarrassment that she had been to him. All of that has just been like harbored for who knows how many years. And when he hears this story about her, the things that come out of his mouth are just evil. He's, he commands that she's brought out of the house to be burned alive. That's where his heart is at his daughter-in-law. Well, Tamar does something pretty interesting because she happens to hold some collateral. And the person that had come to take her, to remove her and drag her out to him, she says, hang on, before you go, she produces the stuff, the ring, the cords, the staff. She says, before anything goes on, take these things and go back to him and let him know that See if he knows who the owner of these things are, because the owner of these is the father of this child. So sure enough, she produces them. He takes them back and presents them to his boss and, and says, this is, this is what happened. Now, what's fascinating is to think about, like, how might Judah have responded what would he have done, right? Like, we get a little glimpse of his character and what he's like. Like, this guy's got a short temper, and he is angry and embarrassed and furious. And you might think, like, okay, he's going to offer for sure. Like, or, or he's going to try and make sure there's a, a, a way to secretly get rid of her quietly so he doesn't have to deal with any of this. Or maybe he's going to pack everything up and move to Milwaukee so that nobody knows him. He can start his life over somewhere else. Like, what is this guy going to do? How is he going to respond What's fascinating is that the way he responds doesn't seem to fit his character up to this point. This is where things begin to change. In Genesis chapter 38, uh, verse 26, he says, it says that Judah recognized them immediately, and he said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. Some translations actually have him saying more simply, more bluntly, she is righteous, I am not. Like he just actually, faced with the facts, owns up. He, he just recognizes, it seems like, that at the root of this whole mess was him. And his unwillingness to do the right thing and withhold the, the right process and the right plan from her and to treat her unkindly, it, it, it's like it's, it just all boils up and, and he, faced with his own sin, just says, she's more righteous than me. And he just takes that. It, it's a really, really remarkable moment. When you think of it, it's hard not to think of another time when a really important guy got faced with a, a rebuke for a similar kind of sin. You think about Nathan, the prophet, when he came to David and he rebuked David for killing Uriah and sleeping with his wife. And the way that David responded to that with repentance and sorrow. And, and, and while that is amazing and it's, it's like, here's a terrible thing you did, but at least you owned your stuff. Like there's some justice feeling in that, you know? But what's even, I think, more remarkable about Judah than David, David re was rebuked by a well-known, powerful prophet of God. Like, it was 
widely known that this man spoke for God, and he came and told David what was wrong, and David owned up to it. Judah is rebuked by an outsider, by a woman pregnant out of wedlock, by very unrighteous means, in fact, had deceived him. He's rebuked by her and called on the carpet about the the part that he played in this sin, and he responds with repentance, which is pretty remarkable. Certainly he could have had her killed. He could have had her taken away. He could have had her disappeared. He could have done a number of things, but he doesn't. He just bows his head. And he owns up to his stuff. The other thing I think that's really interesting in this story and really, really powerful part of this story is is the way that Tamar handled herself. You see, she was about to be publicly drug out before him, before everyone, made a fool of, ridiculed, and burned alive. She could have held on to that collateral until just the right moment when it would have really hit him where it hurts. She could have really gone out of her way to publicly humiliate him, to make sure everybody knew his part in this. But she didn't do that. She, She didn't do that at all. She actually purposely, deliberately sent the stuff to him to let him connect the dots on his own, privately. And I think there's a really, really important lesson that we can take from this. This, this idea that, that seeking justice doesn't require humiliation. It's not something that's common in the world we're living in right now. The, the idea that, that we can advocate for what's right without uh, trying to destroy somebody else in the process. We live in a world right now, whether it's a sports person, a politician, a news person, you name it, anybody that's in any public realm, and it's like the, the only way to show if somebody's wrong or done something wrong is to ruin them. You have to humiliate them and wreck them and destroy their character, otherwise it's not justice. And the story of Tamar shows us that there is actually a different way. It's not turn a blind eye to wrong and not care about justice. But there's a way to seek justice that that at the heart of it is not seeking to destroy the other person. It's actually just seeking justice. And to trust that God can help bring those things about. And that's definitely in stark contrast to the world that we're living in. What's cool is Tamar's uh, significance and the importance of her story doesn't end there. She goes on to give birth. And I, I, this is something I just really love about her story. Like, we think about her again, just this young teenage girl committed to be married to someone that she didn't want to be married to. Turns out to be a horrible person, followed by another horrible person. She's, she's a girl twice widowed, twice middled, uh, married to two terrible people. And in, a, in an act of grace that only God does. Even, even by her not great choice, the means that she went about to get pregnant were unwholesome. In spite of that, the grace that God brings her, she becomes pregnant with twins. 
Like, I don't, it just gives me shivers to think about like how good God is, like that what she went through in these two failed marriages and these two messy things that she had to suffer through and, and even the means by which she went to get there, like in the end, she gets two sons. And these two sons are important. They, they play a huge role in salvation history. It kind of brings us full circle back to the, the gospel of Matthew. In, in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of uh, Perez and Zerah, which are those twin boys. Tamar was their mom. Perez, it goes on to be the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. And if you follow it out for next several generations, we come to King David. And if you continue to follow it out, we come to King Jesus. And here we have this little boy, this son of an outsider and an outcast who acted in ways that aren't really desirable in the lineage of Jesus. And we just get reminded of what we get reminded of. Every time you dig into God's word, you just keep coming up with how good God is. And this story reminds us again of like like the powerful, powerful message that your life and the messes that you make and the mistakes that we make, like we actually serve a God and follow a God who is in the business of bringing about miraculous ends to the messy stuff we do along the way. Our God is so, so good. It just makes it to me when you dig into the scriptures and you dig into these stories and you see the, the way that, that God works in spite of people's wrong choices and mistakes or regrettable things that they did. And, and yet you see God's grace wash over people and redeem people's lives and redeem people's stories. It just makes it that much easier to follow God. It makes it that much easier to sing worship songs because I'm like, holy smokes, I have a little bit of an idea of what God's like. I got no problem singing to him. I've got no problem bending a knee to King Jesus. He's so good. I think back about my life. I think probably many of us in this room, if we sit down, like there's some messes in our stories. There's some mistakes that we've made. There's some regrettable decisions and and it's far too easy to beat yourself up to regret the things you did to get stuck on a cycle of like i can only get i can only be this good because i've got this much like god just miraculously does math that makes no sense to our logical minds he actually wipes our slate clean and sees us as good and righteous as we seek forgiveness We have a a very, very good God. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.